So over the past couple of weeks, we've been tracking through uh, the book of Esther in the Old Testament with its unfamiliar culture. And, and it's strange that times disturbing and quite shocking uh, customs to our modern uh, eyes and ears. And if you haven't uh, been with us for those two weeks, I encourage you to go and listen uh, to Paul's talk and to Jez's talk, which gives some of the background uh, to uh, this, the, this story and what's going on. Uh, and the context in which it's set. It's a book, I think, that's very much propelled along uh, by its plot, by the storyline, uh, encouraging us to ask these questions of what's going on, why are these things happening? Uh, and so far we've been introduced to a number uh, of characters. Uh, the king, King Xerxes, his queen Vashti, who makes an appearance and then disappears from the story quite quickly. Esther, who becomes the new queen, uh, and Mordecai, her cousin, uh, the one who has been uh, uh, acting as a parent for her since her parents died. And last week, Jez took us to the end uh, of chapter two, and it had like, this really dramatic ending. There was this plot to kill the king, uncovered by Mordecai, and then foiled. And so we come now asking this question, where's this story going? What's going to happen next? So let's dive right in. To chapter three and we read that after these events after Esther became queen after the plot to kill the king was uncovered King Xerxes honoured Haman son of Hamathatha the Agagite elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman for the king had commanded this concerning him. We might be expecting to hear something about how the king rewards Mordecai uh, for his role in uncovering the pot, plot to kill him. But no, suddenly we're abruptly introduced to Haman. He's the last of the key characters uh, in this story and he appears suddenly without really much background information as to who he is, where he's come from. All we learn is that he was an Agagite and we'll see later that this is significant. In fact we can't really identify him with any specific historical character but as Jez pointed out last week it's a difficult period of history uh, to, to pin down in terms of historical facts so we don't know whether he is a, a creation for the story, this dramatised historical narrative or whether he really was a character, or perhaps he's a composite of several characters. So here's Haman, and we read on that from the middle of verse 2 that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, we read. And verse 3, then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it, to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Why did Mordecai refuse to bow down, we might ask? 
The text doesn't really explain why. We know that Jews were forbidden from bowing down before other gods, Exodus chapter 20, but they were permitted to bow down before human authorities. This act of subordination, not only to Haman, but ultimately to the king, puzzled those who served alongside Mordecai. And verse 4 suggests that they asked this question not only to discover the reason for Mordecai's behaviour, but also to encourage him to bow before Haman. Yet even though they spoke to him daily, we read, he would not listen to them. He did, however, seem to explain his reticence to bow down by confessing that he was a Jew. Was that the reason or was it simply his pride or something else? We can only speculate. But it prompts a question for us, I think, as we read this. Do we have people around us, like those around Mordecai, who will ask these questions about our behaviour that will help us to consider how we are responding to others, perhaps? And if so, do we listen to them and heed their advice? But whatever the reason for Mordecai's behaviour, we look at Haman's response and we see his pride and his arrogance. He sees this as a slight, an insult, that he is not being honoured by Mordecai, and he completely overreacts. It's a bit of a theme, isn't it, throughout this story, that people overreact to the events around them. I believe it's a behaviour that I see being very prevalent in our culture today, an overreaction, a willingness, a, 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 a rather a readiness to take offence at the slightest remark, to take it as a personal insult when someone says something. It stifles free speech, it stifles creative discussion. And it's the very opposite of what uh, Jesus uh, told us that we should be doing. In Philippians 2, we read that we should consider others to be better than ourselves, not exalting ourselves above others. And later in that letter to the Philippians in chapter four, Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all. We are to come with humility, not taking offence at these things. And here's another application for us. It's this problem of pride, taking offence at perhaps being disrespected which is prevalent in our culture today. We see it amongst teenagers, sadly on our streets. One teenager will take offence at something that another says they feel disrespected. And we see that it can lead to violence, to stabbing, to death. So are we a Haman or a Mordecai? Do we take offence easily or do we respond with humility? And from Mordecai's perspective, do we have the courage, perhaps, to speak out, to speak truth, to stand for God's principles, even though that, in our culture today, might cause offence to others? So that's the first lesson for us. Let's continue uh, reading and see how this story develops. So we read on from verse 7. In the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, 
that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. We have this strange uh, narrative about the casting of the lot. It was very prevalent in Middle Eastern culture at that time for making decisions. And we read a lot about it in scripture. It said the lot is cast into the lap, into the lap of God, and God determines the outcome. It was a way in the Old Testament of seeking God's will in situations. It was considered to be uh, one that's impartial, impersonal, because it's devoid of our direct input. And we would read into this, a Jewish reader would read into this, a sign of God's invisible hand at work. We have a lot of information about dates. And the point here is 11, almost 12 months, a delay of almost a full year before Haman's uh, decision to, uh, to exterminate the Jews is going to be put into practice. That delay is an opportunity for God to work through his people, to work his act of rescue. We also see how Haman uh, manipulates a king, a king who is weak. We know from historical records of the time that this king of Persia was viewed as a weak king, influenced by others. He's playing on his fears and insecurities. This was shortly after that attempt on his life. And Haman does it through exaggeration and then down outright lies. First of all, he says uh, the people keep themselves separate. Well, a little bit of their customs separated them uh, from the rest of the population, but they were also integrated. Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate. He was part of the outer court, perhaps a minor official of some sort. Their customs are different from those of all other people. Well, yes, things like their food customs were different. Their, uh, their worship was different. But in many other ways, they also followed the Persian customs of the time. So it's a bit of an exaggeration. And then they said they do. Then he says they do not obey the king's laws. Well, that was untrue. So he begins with exaggeration uh, and then he moves to downright eyes. It's a distortion of the truth. And he resorts to bribery, offering this huge sum of money to the king. And the weak king falls in line with this, perhaps enticed by the money, which some commentators have said might be as much as two thirds of the annual income of the empire. Interesting question as to where 
Amon thought he was going to get that money from or where he'd already got it from. So question here is one of the abuse of power and the distortion of truth. It's a model of human leadership which runs counter to the model that Jesus encouraged or even commanded his followers. The way of servant leadership, not seeking to claim power for ourselves, to exalt our own position, to get our own way, but to serve others and to lead through servant-hearted attitude. So our response can be in, in one of two directions. As we lead others, we seek to do it in a servant-hearted way. We also have a responsibility to critique abusive power where we see it. But that can only come from a people who appreciate that there is this other way. If we follow the pattern of servant leadership, which Jesus laid down for us, then we find ourselves in a position to offer effective criticism of other patterns of leadership, whether they be political, economic or social. The gospel itself should lead us to take a stand for justice where we see injustice. And returning to our overarching theme or one of the key ideas running through this series, this will require courage on our part. But at the same time, with humility, trusting in the hope that God will do what needs to be done, especially when we won't or don't have all the answers. Servant-hearted leadership. Is that true of our lives? And are we using that as a basis and a model to critique alternative forms of leadership and abuses of power? And then we see that there is a clear thread of ethnic hatred and prejudice and hatred here. Mordecai, uh, Haman de determines not only to kill Mordecai, to punish Mordecai for this perceived insult, but also to, to annihilate all his people, all the Jewish people. And we cannot simply look upon Haman as some antique relic from a distant time. We have to acknowledge that ethnic prejudice and hatred flourish in our world today. And we don't have to look far over the last decade even to see many examples, even on our news uh, in present day. Ethnic prejudice and hatred. But I want to focus on one particular example of that, perhaps one that doesn't make the news quite so often. Let's uh, read the final verses of this chapter uh, and then think about a bigger story that's lying behind this narrative. So uh, in still in chapter three and we read from verse 12. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps. That's his regional governors. 
the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality, so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. There is perhaps a sense as we listen to this story that it's a bit like listening or eavesdropping on a conversation when we don't know the back story. And I want to suggest there's a little bit of that going on here. I want to return to the fact that we were told that Haman was an Agagite. Why is that mentioned and why is that considered important? There are probably a couple of possibilities here uh, and commentators differ uh, on their views. A commonly held view is that Haman was literally descended from a character called Agag. Agag was king of the Amalekites and we read about him in 1 Samuel chapter 5. The Amalekites were a people who were looking to uh, annihilate the Jewish people as they were on their journey towards and into the promised land. Uh, they were in the promised land and the Amalekites came against them. And in chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15, we read how King Saul led an army against them to defend the Israelites. So some suppose that this means he was descended from King Agag. Others seem to think this is unlikely given the time, 600 years and the distance. It was some distance from Jerusalem and, uh, and the land of Israel where uh, this battle had happened. So they think it's unlikely that he was literally descended. And instead they point to an inscription uncovered by archaeologists, which indicate that Agag was also the name of a province in the Persian Empire. Whichever of those views we would choose to hold to, I think there is no doubt that in the crafting of uh, this story, the author is clearly uh, raise, pointing, giving us a pointer to that story in 1 Samuel 15. And any Jewish reader would have picked that up straight away, that resonance, uh, that um, affinity to that story. And it's further enhanced by the fact that in chapter two, we had learned that Mordecai himself uh, was a Jew, uh, but he was descended from Benjamin. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, as also was King Saul. So in this conflict between Haman and Mordecai, there are echoes 
and resonances of the contact, the, the con of the conflict between Agag leading the Amalekites and Saul leading the Israelites. The Amalekites determined to annihilate the Israelites and King Saul coming as their defender. And so we are reminded of the age-old opposition to God's people. An opposition that is satanically inspired. Antisemitism has uh, been a feature throughout history and continuing today. Yes, there are many examples uh, of ethnic hatred and prejudice, but I would suggest that with the uh, Jewish people, this is probably the most intense and prolonged example of ethnic prejudice and hatred that we have seen. And it crops up again from time to time, even today in 21st century Britain. And there is a spiritual dimension to this. The people of Israel were God's chosen people and they are still God's chosen people today. They have yet to experience their final salvation at God's hand and they will do so when Jesus returns. It's uh, perhaps a feature we don't dwell on very much. We tend to spiritualise away a lot of uh, these issues, but I suggest a rereading of Romans 11 will give us a clearer view of the, the God's ongoing promise to his people. We don't know how he will achieve that. We have some insights, uh, but it is clear that they are still God's chosen people. And while some of the covenants, like the Sinai covenant, may have been replaced by the new covenant in Jesus' blood, there are other covenants, other promises that God made to his people, which still stand, and God is faithful to his promise. So there is this spiritual battle going on through the ages. Uh, we believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, Christians today, as those who are grafted into Israel, as those who are inheritors of the promises to Israel, of those who are blessed by the new covenant, are also caught up in this. Our battle is not physical, it's against flesh, it's not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers, says Paul, as he writes to the Ephesians. And we see that persecution of Christians is a massive issue in the world today. It is a spiritual battle and it culminates at the end of this age, as we read in Revelation chapter 12, that Satan cast out to earth is enraged at the woman representing Israel and her offspring representing the Christians. He is enraged, he is in fury, determined to destroy them all. This is the backdrop uh, to, uh, to the world today. This is the spiritual reality in which we live. And I think we need to be aware of this. What questions does it specifically raise for us? How do we apply this in our lives? Well, I suggest uh, there are two or three ways in which we can do that. 
the first question is, what is our attitude towards uh, the Jewish people as those first chosen by God? Do we pray for them? Do we pray for their final and ultimate salvation, that they would come to know Jesus as Messiah? Secondly, how are we standing with our persecuted brothers and sisters, fellow Christian believers around the world? Do we pray for them? Do we seek to encourage them? Do we stand with them? And thirdly, when, and I say when but rather than if perhaps, will we be ready personally uh, as the church in the UK when persecution comes in this world you will have trouble says Jesus if they hated me they will hate you said Jesus or do we think that will never happen to us perhaps we need to read the signs of the times what is our attitude towards the Jewish people the people of God how are we standing with our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ and will we individually be ready for persecution when it comes? So to draw all this to an end, a number of questions that it leaves us with that we've uncovered as we've very briefly gone through this uh, chapter in Esther's story. How do we react when we feel that people are not showing us the worth we think we're due? We're feeling disrespected are we quick to take offense or are we as secure in our true identity we thought about hidden identity last week are we secure in our identity in Christ do we have the courage to stand against injustice when we see it that courage to speak truth even if it causes offense to stand for God's truth against the so-called truth of the world and do we have the servant heart that is a necessary precondition in our lives in order to be able to take that stand to speak truth in love because we are humble uh, and meek of heart and finally do we grasp this bigger spiritual picture the overall storyline of the Bible? Do we recognise this spiritual conflict? Do we recognise Satan's opposition to God's people? That it is real and that it affects us, Jews and Christians? And do we stand with the persecuted, being prepared to face persecution ourselves? Some questions maybe to consider in the week ahead. Some questions to reflect on as we move now into a time when we can personally respond to uh, these words of God and these words and these thoughts that we've had this morning, these questions, as we respond in prayer and in song. Let's quiet our hearts as we prepare to hear God, hear the Spirit speaking to us and be ready for our lives to be changed as he touches us today.